This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to another episode of New Books in German Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. My name is Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, and I'm one of the many co-hosts of this podcast channel. I'm very pleased uh, to have Lisa Todd as a guest today. Lisa will discuss her book entitled Sexual Treason in Germany During the First World War, published with Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. Hello, Lisa, and welcome to the show. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, Lisa, I was wondering if you could start us out today by discussing your professional background, your personal biography, with an emphasis on how you became interested in and passionate about German studies. Certainly. Um, so I began my undergraduate career at the University of New Brunswick, exactly in the same department where I teach now, which is a whole nother story, I'm sure. Um, when I first arrived from high school, I was convinced that I was going to study Canadian history, and even more specifically, I was going to study Canadian-American relations, um, something which would have had me in very good stead in the past couple of weeks with the relations between our two countries. (laughs) And so I was taking courses in Canadian history, but then I took one course in the history of fascism, and I absolutely loved it, and I decided that I was going to switch my focus. So for the remainder of my undergraduate career, I took courses in the history of Germany and the history of Third Reich and the history of the Holocaust. And as luck would have it, I was already studying the German language as my language requirement. And so that was a complete fluke. But it did mean that when I came out of my BA, I already had a fairly good uh, grounding in German language. I then was very fortunate to win a Commonwealth Fellowship, which allowed me to do my master's degree at Royal Holloway College, which is part of the University of London in the UK. And I did an intensive one-year MA there on the history of modern Europe with a specialty in Germany. And it was at Royal Holloway that I studied. I started studying gender history much more uh, intensively, and I loved it. And I ended up doing my thesis on the gendered nature of First World War, sorry, the gendered nature of First World War propaganda in Germany, France, and Britain. Uh, From London, I went on to the University of Toronto to do a PhD in German history. And once again, I I had very good fortune this time to work with Jim Ritalik, who's a specialist in the history of the Kaiserreich. Um, It was during one of his seminars on imperial German history that I read Uta Daniel's book on German working class women in the First World War. And in that book, she has one small section 
where she talks about sexual relationships between German women and prisoners of war. And I decided to write a seminar paper. And I enjoyed the research greatly. And Jim suggested that that might form the kernel of my PhD dissertation. And it did. So I went on to write a dissertation on sexual lives in Germany during the First World War. And that dissertation uh, was heavily revised and became the book that we're talking about today. Uh, thank you, Lisa. And I find uh, your story particularly interesting because I feel like the last time that we met, you were just at the start of this project. So part of why I was interested in interviewing you when I saw that the book came out was I was very curious to see how it had turned out and how you're doing now. Yeah, I believe um, that so. was at the University of Minnesota, which feels like about a million years ago. <laughs> it does. A lifetime ago, right? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, just... Uh, Keeping um, things focused a little bit on your process with the book before we get into its contents, uh, just glancing at your uh, bibliography at the end of the book mm -hmm. uh, has a very rich archival base, and uh, it seemed like you worked in a lot of archives from all over the country. So mm -hmm. I was wondering if you uh, had anything you might say about that process, because I found that very interesting. Certainly. So I spent uh, a bit more than a year in Germany in different chunks uh, doing my the research for this book. I went to archives in, I'm not sure if I can list them all now, but in Berlin, Munich, Hamburg, Stuttgart, and Frankfurt. And I went, of course, to the national archives and to local archives. I also went to military uh, collections. I spent a fair bit of time in religious archives, which I'm sure would be interesting in your research as well. Um, <laughs> and I, I tried to look at a whole collection of documents. Um, and I tried to look at this issue from many different perspectives, uh, be it medical or military or police records. Um, just to get kind of a broader, as I said, a broader perspective on people's lives during this war. Um, and then from home, I was able to do more work into people's diaries, into art and literature, just to try to make it uh, even more well-rounded. Yeah. And um, I wonder, how was uh, your project received by archivists and by the you know the German historical profession when you're spending time over there working on it? It's a good question. Um, I was told by several people at the very beginning of my project that I wouldn't find anything, which is never a great thing to hear. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, several people said to me, you know, nobody really talked about sex in those days. That was something that everyone kept very quiet. Um, and luckily, I found, as have so many other historians recently, that lots of people were talking about sex, people in government and in the medical profession and, and everyday people on the street were talking about sexual matters, maybe not always in the way that our own society does today, but they certainly uh, didn't consider sexual lives as something that should only be in the home, that should only be in the bedroom. And so I was completely overwhelmed by archival documents. I have piles of things that I've never used because I found that conversations around prostitution and venereal disease and birth control were infiltrating into all kinds of different discussions, um, both in you know, political and military leaderships, and like I said, in the lives of everyday people. Um, when I went to archives, I, I would have somewhat similar experiences. Sometimes archivists would, would tell me right off they had nothing. 
Um, but then if I asked more specific questions, like, do you have the records of the morals police of Stuttgart from these years? They would say yes. Um, do you have the records of military doctors stationed in France? Well, of course we have those, they would say. Um, and so if I asked more specific questions, and I'm sure this is something that all historians run into, um, that I was able to get uh, better answers and more specific information. But if I just landed at the Bundesarchiv and said, I'm studying sex in the First World War, I wouldn't have had such a, a positive response, I don't think. And I think things are, this was also, you know, quite a long time ago that I started this project. Um, I think things are now changing both in archival circles and certainly in the historical profession. And people are becoming much more attuned to the varied history of sexuality. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've heard similar stories from the time when, when you, you know, when you were working uh, or first starting the project. So I'm really glad that you uh, remain so persistent with it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> So I think uh, at this point, then maybe we can transition into talking about some of the contents of the book. Okay. Uh, It's a very good book, very well written, um, and I I really enjoyed it. And I think the uh, second chapter of the book is an interesting one, um, where you really provide the pre-1914 background uh, to what happened during the war. And in this chapter, you really talk about what you describe as these two approaches to sexuality during the Kaiserreich, uh, a modern moral perspective on the one hand and a more scientifically supported approach on the other hand. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about these two approaches and some of the tensions between them. Certainly. Um, So some people would probably dispute Uh, the way I categorize these two movements, because in many ways they were very much intertwined. Um, So the moral purity movement, as as it was often known in the late 19th century and early 20th century, did have various different players. Um, And I've kind of grouped them all together here because I think they were talking about similar things. Um, But there were certainly many religious organizations, moral purity leagues, as they often called themselves, as you would well know. There were the morals police that I've already mentioned. Uh, There was a growing movement of sexologists, so people who studied uh, sexuality and sexual lives from what they considered to be a more scientific point of view. And you could certainly put the very famous Magnus Hirschfeld into this category. Um, The women's movement uh, was certainly heavily involved in discussions around moral issues. And these people... And they did tend to be largely middle class, which doesn't mean that lower class people were not talking about these issues, but they didn't always have the public forums. Although that said, uh, members of the SPD, of the Social Democratic Party of Germany, were often involved in these conversations on different levels. Um, But so these, these varied people often came together in meetings, in conferences, They had debates with one another in newspapers and in journals, and they talked about things like prostitution. Prostitution was very widespread in Europe all throughout the 19th century up until the First World War. They talked about how the prostitution system should be regulated, whether it should be banned, uh, did prostitutes have any rights. 
they talked about the control of venereal disease diseases. And these are all things I'll come back to, I'm sure, in the course of the interview. They talked about birth control. They talked about abortion. They talked about sexual pleasure. Um, people like Helena Stocker, who was a, a very important member of the German women's movement at this time, the feminist movement in Germany. She talked about the concept of free love. And Stocker said, you know, maybe we don't even need marriage anymore. Maybe men and women should be, and this is, I mean, they talked about men and women at this time, even though there was some conversation about transgendered people as well. But she said, maybe men and women should be free to have sex with whoever they wanted. Maybe it's not natural for people to have only one sexual partner throughout their lives. Um, people like Stoker and others talked about female sexual pleasure because in the 19th century, there was a dominant model. I would say this was shifting by the early 20th century, but in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, etc., there was the dominant model um, that we now call the double standard of bourgeois sexual morality. And it largely said that men should be free to have sexual lives even before marriage, to perhaps have extramarital partners during their marriage, and, but that women should be virgins when they married. Um, but if men were supposed to come to their marriages with sexual experiences and their wives were meant to be virgins, this meant that middle-class men likely turned to working-class or lower-class women to fulfill their sexual desires and to gain experience. Um, and so there were, there were people who were fighting back against that model and saying that it was unfair to women and that it was unfair to working class people and that it spread disease and it spread crime. I could go on and on. Um, so these types of, of, of conversations were circulating around different circles. And I argue in my book that they certainly had an impact uh, on the way sexuality was treated during the war because people were already in these organizations. They were already publishing in these journals. They were already holding these conferences so that when the war broke out in 1914, they were poised and ready to have an impact in their opinions. Um, I also argue that these groups of people to varying degrees felt very strongly that they should have a say in how society was structured. And to some extent, to how everyday people live their lives. And so again, this meant that when the war broke out, they, they often weren't shy in saying, we don't agree with these brothels that are being uh, built at the front. We don't agree with these soldiers' wives who allegedly are running around um, with other men. And so this pre-war moral purity movement, the, the organization of it, the content of it, had uh, vast ramifications on the war years. That's great. And you did, you know, one thing that jumped out at me in, in this chapter and throughout the book is that you do, although the book is, you know, largely a, you know, a social and cultural history, every now and again, you do bring up some of these uh, big personalities and these major figures who've been written about quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Helena Stocker already. Um, you know, you brought up August Babel, mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned Magnus Hirschfeld. Um, what was it like to sort of encounter these sorts of, these sort of luminaries of German history as you're working on this uh, social history and 
how how influential do you think the major figures were versus sort of the larger social and cultural trends? Hmm, that's interesting. Um, it was very interesting to encounter some of these people. And of course, most of them I had heard about before, I had studied before, but I, I didn't realize until I was doing my research how influential Magnus Hirschfeld has been, for instance. And so now my students tease me that Magnus Hirschfeld is in almost every lecture I give on German history. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure there's a little bit. Um, but certainly he was such an influential figure in the 19th century, in the pre-war period, throughout the war, and then, of course, primarily in the Weimar Republic, um, until he was chased out of Nazi Germany in 1933. And so figures like that were very important uh, in my research. I, I try not to let them dominate the book. Um, I tried not to let the book be kind of a history of these great figures, because I think that there were lots of people involved in these conversations. And one of the things I've tried to do is show the, the similarities and the differences between what figures like, you know, August Babel or Helena Stuckler were saying, what the government was doing, what the state was doing, and then everyday people's lives. And so what were kind of the connections between those three levels? It's not always easy to tease out those connections in detail, but I think it's important always to have in mind that these discourses are, are happening at different levels and they're having effects at different levels of society as well. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting dynamic that you, that you capture well in the book. Um, so yeah, just shifting our attention a little bit to... Uh, the third chapter, uh, this is a chapter where you talk uh, about uh, heterosexual sex as it occurred in the occupied territories during the war, mm-hmm. the territories that Germany occupied. And I was interested how you, um, in some ways, you pitched the chapter as challenging a basic assumption Mm -hmm. that assumption is that militaries do brothels to boost morale yes and you know you challenge that in this chapter so i I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that absolutely um so you're absolutely right i did try to seek to kind of break down this trope a bit and it doesn't mean that it's not true Uh, militaries in in many different time periods all around the world have set up brothels um, to give their soldiers rewards, rewards for good fighting, for good behavior, for obedience. Um, And certainly that can lead to boosting troop morale. So I don't dispute any of that. What I say is that it's all quite a bit more complicated than that simple trope, as I said earlier. Um, that in the First World War, these brothels, as I show, were heavily contested. They were heavily contested by people on the home front, the same types of figures I was just discussing. People were writing to the Kaiser, they were writing to military officials, they were writing to local politicians, they were writing directly to soldiers, and they were protesting the fact that men were having sex with foreign women. And I use the word foreign here in quotation marks. You can't see them on this podcast. Um, But I don't like that word foreign, but it's one that was used uh, constantly during this period. And so they were certainly contested. Um, There were lots of men who really wanted nothing to do with 
organized prostitution. Um, it was more difficult to find their voices, and so they don't appear as often in my book. Um, when I first started this research, I wanted to do much more on homosexuality or non-heterosexual men in the German military. I found it fairly difficult to find that information. Luckily, historians such as Jason Kruthammel have been more successful. And so now we do have more work on what the lives of men who didn't engage in this kind of, you know, so-called typical heterosexuality looked like during the war. And I guess most crucially, what I wanted to do was show what this whole system was like for the women involved. And I think that, the, you know, surprisingly and disappointingly, the women who worked as prostitutes, either voluntarily or more likely forcibly, are often left out of these discussions, um, often left out of conversations by historians. And that is, as I say, it's surprising and disappointing. And so I really worked to put their voices back into the story to, as much as I could, talk about what it was like to be a prostitute in occupied France, for instance. And so just to return to your question, I don't dispute that militaries had very specific reasons for operating brothels, um, but I think they're more complicated. And of course, what I've forgotten to add um, is the very crucial point that militaries were very concerned in controlling the spread of disease. And so in my book and in my comments, I'll talk about venereal diseases. Now we would call them sexually transmitted infections. I'm talking primarily about syphilis and gonorrhea and chlamydia in this time period. Uh, venereal diseases or VDs were dang very dangerous at this time. They still are today, of course. But in an era before penicillin, they largely could not be cured. And so medical professionals could treat the symptoms of venereal diseases, often with very devastating results with medications such as salversan, which was full of arsenic, for instance. Um, but they weren't they largely weren't able to cure them. And so if you contracted a venereal disease, and specifically syphilis as the most dangerous of those, you probably would have it for the rest of your life. And it was very likely that you would transfer it to other people, either other people, other people within the sex trade, within prostitution, or with your own sexual partners at home, your fiance, your girlfriend, your wife, etc. if you were a man. Um, and so militaries were very concerned about the control of disease. So I also offer, or argue sorry, that brothels were a way to control the spread of disease. They weren't always successful, but militaries believed um, that if you concentrated women in one spot, if you had a medical doctor who gave them gynecological exams often as often as once a week, um, that you could control those women, that you could control whether they spread those diseases on to men. As I said, this was a largely faulty uh, program because the, uh, the diseases did not always present themselves with physical symptoms right away. So there were still infections taking place. But the military could say, you know, we've provided these opportunities for safe sex for our soldiers. And so from a medical point of view, 
this was considered uh, progress. Um, from a moral point of view, this was considered providing soldiers with opportunities for sex outside of marriage, which went against uh, Christian teachings at the time. I feel like I may have gotten away from your question there, Michael. Sorry. Uh, no, you didn't. Actually, I was the very next thing I, I had on my list too was uh, the sort of concern and uh, obsession in many ways with venereal disease and mm-hmm. the spread of venereal disease that was part of this chapter. And you know, one thing that really just building on some of what you were saying there that really struck me about this chapter that you captured well were the burdens on the women sex workers. Yes, uh, the burden was often placed on them to prevent the spread of, of venereal disease. I was wondering if you talk about that for a little while. Certainly. So I've mentioned that uh, military officials thought that these brothels were very efficiently run because they had military doctors in them, etc. However, and as you've just mentioned, often the burden was on the woman sex worker herself. And so I have examples of, of posters, of informational pamphlets from brothels, where women are given a long list of things that they have to do. I'm not going to go into too much graphic detail here today. I go into more. You have to, you have to buy the book if you want the graphic details. <laughs> Absolutely right. Um, but just in a nutshell, women were expected to you know, cleanse their own genitals with different chemicals, encourage or, or force their male clientele to do the same to their own genitals. Um, And then the man uh, was expected to wear a condom if one was available. And then after the sexual act, uh, both male and female were meant to cleanse themselves again, perhaps use a certain type of douche. Um, Very, very invasive things. And as I alluded to earlier, often with very dangerous chemicals that has serious short-term and long-term effects on people's health. Um, there would often in brothels be a certain room set up where that had all of these disinfectants in them, or the women or the girls were meant to have all of these things in their own room. And from what I've read, it, it seems that it was often their responsibility to make sure all of these things were done. And so I can imagine that there were many cases where men said, oh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to wear a condom. And I'm not sure what the woman was supposed to do in that case. Um, I do know that most brothels had uh, military guards stationed outside them um, and sometimes inside them. They were supposed to be there to maintain order, quote unquote. I don't know if they would ever intervene if a dispute broke out between a man and a woman. And I can imagine Although I unfortunately, or I shouldn't say that, I can imagine that uh, often these disputes would be incredibly violent. And of course, women sex trade workers then and now were in very vulnerable positions when it came to violence um, by their male clientele. And so I've always felt that what I was able to present about these brothels is probably just scratching the surface of what actually went on especially around violence and coercion um, towards female sex workers. Yeah, yeah. And um, then I was wondering if you could also talk a little bit about the um, myriad fears that military officials then had about venereal disease Mm -hmm. uh, beyond 
you know, trying to stem the spread of venereal disease, uh, why did people both uh, at the front and on the home front uh, have such deep anxiety about them? That's a very good question. And so, as you said, there were myriad fears, and some of them were short-term, and some of them were about the short-term effects of VDs, and some of them were about the long-term effects of VDs. In the short-term, if a soldier contracted a venereal disease, he would be, you know, quote-unquote, put out of action, put out of military service. Um, He would need to be treated. Often he would be treated in a field hospital or he'd be transferred further away from the front to a a special venereal disease hospital. And that treatment could take weeks or it could even take months. And so for that length of time, the man was no longer um, in active service. And so if you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people over the course of the war, this had detrimental military effects on the fighting strength of the German military forces. And so that was in the short term. Um, I guess also in the short term was the concern that the diseases would be spreading uh, quickly before they could be discovered. In a longer term, though, uh, military officials and medical professionals and even uh, government bureaucrats were worried that the men were going to come home to Germany, either on furlough or when the war ended. And they were going to spread the diseases to women in Germany, um, to their wives, to their fiancés, to their girlfriends. And at this time, venereal diseases were thought, and in many cases they did, cause infertility, sometimes in men, but more often in women. And so there was a real fear that there was going to be a whole generation of German women who were unable to reproduce, who were unable to have children. And this would be a concern at any time in any society, um, both on a private le- level, but often these people were talking more in a, a nas- on a national level about national health. And by 1914, there, there was quite a large and widespread uh, movement of so-called population politics in Germany. Um, Several historians, such as Annette Tim, have written about this. And population politics was kind of the catchphrase for many different conversations around the size and the health of the German national population. And there were many Germans who felt like they always had to be increasing the national population. They always felt like they were in competition with France, who they often beat in this game, and in competition with Russia, to whom they often, well, they always lost. Of course, Russia always had a much larger population than the Germans. Um, But in the years leading up to the First World War, this was seen in military uh, circles as a problem, that you needed a population if you were going to go to war. You needed a population of young men to fight. It was seen in economic circles that you needed a population of workers. You needed people to work in your factories, to work on the farms, to grow the economy. Um, It was seen in many different ways as as very important, very important to building the German folk. And so venereal diseases were very much linked before the war and during the war and after the war to this uh, project of population politics. And of course, it became much more complicated because, as I mentioned earlier, there were also increasingly people who were advocating for more 
uh, effective and more widely available contraceptives. Um, and of course, there were contraceptives at this time. There wasn't the birth control pill as we know it today. Um, but as I've mentioned, people did use condoms. They used different types of diaphragms and possessories and douches. There's, of course, always the withdrawal method, method and the calendar method, et cetera, et cetera. So people were using birth control. They were using contraceptives. Um, and there were many people within this population politic realm who thought that that was dangerous. So Catholics, for instance, would think this was dangerous because it went against biblical teachings. Um, but scientists and, and feminists and others, feminists of different stripes, of course, thought that it was dangerous because it was allowing people to have smaller families. And this in turn would have a detrimental effect on the German nation. Um, and this is something that historians, of course, have found ties through many different generations in, in modern German history. And so I would say the link, to go back to your question, the link between venereal diseases um, and population politics was very strong. And vene venereal diseases and the detrimental effects on military strength were very strong, both in the short term of the First World War and longer term for German military planning. And of course, not to interrupt you, um, but of course, none of this has anything to do or none of this is specifically focused on the suffering that people went through, the suffering that individuals went through when they had to live with, you know, incurable syphilis, um, when they had to live, you know, with sores all over their bodies or the many sure. other horrible uh, symptoms of these diseases. And so... You know, as I've been saying, you have to think about what was happening to individual families, and individual people, but also how people were projecting that on the national level. And yeah, and, and that does speak to once again how the book sort of operates on these multiple levels, the everyday experience on the one hand, and then the rhetoric uh, intellectual, public and cultural rhetoric around these things on the other hand, as well as specific policies. Um, so the, you know, as you move forward in the book, you, uh, bring the story back to the home front, mm -hmm. uh, and you talk about, uh, sex on the home front. And one thing I found interesting is you talked a little bit about how the context of war caused, um, sexuality to change and specifically for women, uh, the definition of what it took for them to be called a prostitute seemed to change in right. the context of war. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that with our audience. Absolutely. Um, so as I've already mentioned, the, the concept of the prostitution trade was heavily debated all throughout Europe in the years before 1914. But in looking at various sources and documents, I do see a shift in the years after 1914 until the end of the war, in that police forces, military forces, government officials were very much, uh, in my opinion, cracking down on people in the sex trade at the same time, so people in the sex trade on the home front at the same time that they were basically running parts of the sex trade on the fighting fronts. And so you have this very contradictory thing going on here. Um, but on the home front, 
1914, there were already tens of thousands of women engaged in the sex trade um, in various ways within the regulation system primarily. Uh, and this didn't change. When the war broke out, those women who were in the sex trade already, most of them continued uh, to work in the sex trade. Some of them realized that if they moved to areas where there were troop training grounds, they'd have more business. And so there were some women who used the war to have more clientele. And I, I would not dispute that. But there were certainly lots of other women who, in my opinion, were forced into the sex trade because of what was happening during the war. Um, because their, their husband was at the front and his military pension or, or soldiers' wives benefit was not large enough for their family to subsist on. So I have lots of examples of uh, soldiers' wives who turned to prostitution, not because it was necessarily something they wanted to do, but because they needed to feed their families. Of course, lots of other women went into factory work. Um, they went into wartime work. And even some of those women also turned to the sex trade. So all throughout this time period, there was a phenomenon that police forces uh, called secret prostitution. They, they didn't say this in a very complimentary way. And secret prostitution referred to women who usually had another job, so would work in a factory. And of course, we're talking about lower class women here. Um, and so they would work in a factory, but they weren't making enough money to support themselves or their families. And so they would also work in the sex trade on the side. Uh, and some women would come in and out of the sex trade. So this, you know, the whole definition of prostitute was very, very fluid at this time. And in some communities, and I don't want to belabor this, but in some communities, it was quite natural, maybe not pleasant, but a, a kind of a part of your life as a lower class poor woman that you might be forced to kind of come in and out of the sex trade at different points of your life in order to survive economically. And so police forces were very frustrated uh, by these so-called secret prostitutes because they didn't feel like they could control them in the same way that they controlled so-called regulated prostitutes. So as I was saying, in the war years, this situation became even more complicated uh, and, and women still needed to enter the sex trade at different times in order to support themselves and sometimes their children. But the police were given increasingly more power to clamp down on these women because now unre unregulated sexuality, as I've been saying, uh, was seen as more of a, a national disaster, was seen as a military disaster. Um, so now you couldn't just arrest a woman because she was uh, having sex for money. You could say that she was endangering the troops. She was endangering the future of Germany, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the definition was changing. The other thing that I found in the course of my research in, in many different cases is that women who had sex outside of marriage could be classified as a prostitute, even if no money had changed hands. Um, and I can't imagine the devastating effect this had on an individual women. And I'll just give you uh, one short example of this. There are many more in the book. Um, but there was a 16-year-old girl in Hamburg. Um, her name was Helena. 
And she was working in a factory and she was living at home with her mother. And from what we know from various records, one night her boss suggested that several of the girls go out for drinks with him at a local wine bar. And from what we know, and again, sometimes it's difficult to tease out the actual truth in these documents, from, but from what we know, she met a young officer when she was having drinks with her colleagues. Um, and we have no idea what happened that night. But we do know that several weeks later, her mother received a letter from the morals police in Hamburg saying that the officer had contracted a venereal disease and he was naming Helena, 16-year-old Helena, as the so-called source of the infection. This was a very common uh, use of this terminology. And so Helena was ordered to go to the local hospital where she would uh, undergo examinations. So the mother took Helena to their local doctor. He examined her and he gave her a certificate saying she was clean. And again, this was a, a, a horrible but very commonly used term to refer to someone who was not infected with disease. Uh, the mother, and unfortunately I don't know her name as you can probably tell, took the certificate to the morals police, said, look, my daughter's fine. The police officer said, I don't believe you and took Helena to the hospital. And again, from what I can tell from the documents, uh, Helena was in the hospital for a week. She was then released. And we know that several weeks later, she was uh, in a home for endangered and fallen girls, as they were called at that time. And so while we don't know every detail of the story, we know that this young girl went from being a factory worker to being placed into one of these homes for endangered girls. Um, and certainly her life was not improved by what happened to her. Um, and so this is just one of many stories that show that women could be, their lives could be greatly changed by accusations that were thrown against them, by being denounced, which I talk about a lot in the book, by their neighbors for having sex with men who uh, to whom they were not married. Uh, and increasingly, these women were called prostitutes, as I said at the beginning, even if they weren't having sex for money, even if they weren't working in the sex trade. Often prostitute was used as a derogatory term to refer to women who were having sex outside of marriage. Um, I also argue in the book that from what I can tell from many different types of documents, uh, sexual relationships where it seemed that the women had their own agency, that perhaps they did meet somebody and had sex with them because they wanted to. Um, they did pursue, you know, a prisoner of war, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. They did kind of have sex because they wanted to or because they needed to. These types of relationships were seen in a much more detrimental light. And people were very suspicious, in my opinion, of relationships where it seemed that the women had sexual agency and perhaps had been uh, the instigator of the relationship. So you're very right in saying that the definition of prostitution was used in all kinds of ways um, to further control the lives of women. Yeah, and I think this might be a good moment in the interview to talk about uh, you know, the term that you use in the title, sexual treason. 
mm-hmm. which is the thread that runs through the book in many ways is you know, maybe the main thesis of the book. And you have these wonderful uh, quotes at the start of each chapter that sort of support this notion of sexual treason during the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you know, in your chapters on the home front, the POW chapter, as well as the one we, were, we just discussed, you seem to really capture this interesting tension around the, the notion of sexual treason and that it was a, a cultural concept that had grave consequences, shaped government policy, could destroy the life of a young woman or, or severely affect it or change it. There was a lot of scapegoating of, of women. Uh, especially that went into this, you know, that came from this concept of sexual treason. You also tease out how as powerful as this cultural concept was, it, you know, sometimes everyday people ignored it and did what they wanted to do anyway and didn't necessarily view their sexual decisions as constituting treason or putting the, they didn't want to put the nation in front of their everyday needs. Uh, So I was wondering if you could talk about you know, how you came up with this concept for the book, but also some of the tensions that you bring out about the concept. Okay, certainly. Um, so yeah, sexual treason is, is part of the title of the book and is a thread running uh, all throughout the work. And I use the word treason and the phrase sexual treason in different ways throughout the book. And just to be clear uh, to our listeners, I'm not always using it and I'm often not using it in a strictly legalistic way. And so I'm not always talking about people uh, who were charged with treason, although I do have a few examples of this. But I'm using it more as a metaphor for many of the things that we've talked about today, that, you know, becoming infected with a venereal disease could be seen as treasonous against the long-term health of the German people. That women having sex outside of marriage could be seen as treasonous towards the nation, but also a huge betrayal of their husband who might be at the front. And often there's, you know, frequent rhetoric that these women are, these German women are running around partying and doing whatever they want on the home front while their husbands are stuck in the trenches. And certainly there's some validity to that. Um, But as I try to show in my book, it's certainly much more complicated than that as well. Um, But often soldiers' wives, as you mentioned in your question, were singled out as being the worst offenders because not only were they having sex with people um, to whom they were not married, but they might be betraying a husband who was at the front. Um, Sometimes the rhetoric was also used against men, uh, men who were having sex with so-called foreign women, as I mentioned before. And, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of pamphlets were sent to men in the trenches and in occupied territories, for instance, encouraging them to either have safer sex or not to have sex with foreign women at all. And often the rhetoric of, of national pride was used. You know, do you really want to endanger your whole country by having one night of passion? This was the, the type of language they used. And so I see that as a, a way of using the rhetoric of treason. Um, But most specifically, uh, this accusation of sexual treason was leveled at women who were accused of having sexual relations with prisoners of war. Uh, So maybe I'll just talk about that for a moment. Uh, So during the course of the First World War, the German military took about two and a half million men uh, as prisoners of war. 
and you can see similar things happening in, in other countries throughout the war. But in the German case, uh, these prisoners were first housed in, they were brought back to Germany primarily, although not always, and they were first housed in prisoner of war camps throughout the country. Um, but fairly quickly, within the first year or so of the war, the camps were filling to capacity and the government was having a hard time finding places to imprison these men. At the same time, or around the same time, there was a growing agricultural crisis in Germany. Um, certainly by 1915-1916, there was real pressure on farmers and other people in the agricultural sector to find workers. Of course, because there had been such a large call-up of men into the military, um, there were fewer and fewer people to work the farms, especially around harvest time. And often farms throughout Germany were being run by women because their fathers, their brothers, their husbands um, were at the front. And so the government came up with the idea that prisoners of war could make good agricultural laborers. And so increasingly they were I don't want to use the word hired out because they weren't paid, um, but they were given out to local farms to work as laborers. Sometimes they would uh, go from the prisoner camp to the farm and then be marched back in the same day. Um, but as the prisoner camps were filling up, increasingly they were billeted at local farms. So just to make a long story short, um, often you would have a woman who was in charge of a farm and she would be the boss of these prisoners of war. And they might come from Russia or France or Britain or Serbia, various places. And so you had these very often, these very uh, intimate, that's not really the word I want in this context, but these close relationships between women and these prisoners because they were working side by side in these farms and increasingly they were sleeping in the same house. And so it didn't take long for rumors to start spreading primarily around the German countryside that German women were having sexual affairs with these prisoners of war. And sometimes they were, I'm not debating that, but this turned into a major controversy in wartime Germany. Um, women were brought to court they were charged with, uh, often with a very specific part of the Prussian War Siege Act um, from the 19th century, which said that civilians could not, you know, have close contact with prisoners of war. And so the government found ways, the courts found ways to charge them with specific crimes. But in reading the sentencing by judges, it's clear that really the crime was that the woman had had sex with a foreign man. And so often this rhetoric of treason was very explicitly used. Um, and these court cases were heavily publicized. And so I was able to find hundreds of them mentioned in newspapers from all around um, the Kaiserreich at this time. And, you know, in the book, I spend some time uh, doing kind of a discourse analysis on these newspaper reports and on these court cases and teasing out how this theme of treason is was often used uh, throughout them. And I give lots of, of different examples. Um, and 
you know, women were heavily shamed in their communities for these relationships. Um, heavily shamed on, you know, face to face on a neighborly level. Uh, as I mentioned, their names were often published in the newspapers. Sometimes lists of names of so-called immoral women would be placed on church doors. And sometimes either on the church doors or in the newspapers, the headline would be on the pillory, which of course is a very direct reference to you know, the, the medieval pillory where people would be placed in a town square um, and have tomatoes thrown at them, for instance. So it, it was very clear to me that this was very much a, a very deliberate attempt to shame these women for what they had done. Um, but just to get to the second part of your question, I could talk about this all day, um, but to get to the <laughs> part of your question about tensions, certainly, I, I, I certainly try to bring out in the book the fact that, as you said, not everybody acted according to the law. Not everybody acted according to what their leaders were telling them to do. Um, and yeah, a man or you know a boy might have in the trench might have gotten a pamphlet saying, "Don't shame your mother by having sex with a French woman," but that doesn't mean that he didn't do it. Um, certainly, we know that there were lots of women on the home front who were having sex, even though they could face. Uh, legal legal repercussions. They could face the type of societal repercussions I was just talking about. And I mean, the other thing I should say is that there were lots of different opinions by onlookers. And so, you know, today I've emphasized those people who were critical of wartime sex, um, people who were speaking out against the brothels or speaking out against these relationships with prisoners of war. Um, but there were also often more quiet voices publishing all throughout this period who said things like, well, of course they had sex. They were young men. They were young women. They were far from home. Of course they had sex with each other. That's what young people do, you know, said one older author. Um, there was another woman who said, you know, the, the prisoners of war in my community became part of our community fabric. We would see them out raking leaves. They helped me carry my coal. And she said, you know, I always made a point to be really kind to them because my own son was a prisoner of war in France. And so I always thought, you know, I, I hope there's a French mother who's looking after my son, like I'm being nice to this young French prisoner. And so there were also, you know, beneath the, the rhetoric that I've been kind of a hyper-nationalistic rhetoric I've been talking about today, there were also very real reactions um, and everyday reactions and a real sense that these were just people. They might be the enemy, and of course, Germans were being told constantly through propaganda what their enemies were like and that they should be feared. Um, but there were people who, who said, well, no, they're, they're, they're men and women like we are and we should treat them accordingly. So certainly there were tensions. And I would say this is probably true for, for any time period. There's always a difference between what people are saying and what people are doing. 
Well, that's uh, great, Lisa. And I think um, you've given us uh, a really wonderful sense of the research you did in this book and a lot of the interpretations that you included in the text. And I would assure our audience that there's actually much more to this book as well. Uh, you know, a wonderful chapter on the fertility rate, contraception and abortion, a great chapter on the post-war situation, including sort of a new interpretation of the so-called black horror on the Rhine, the sexual relationships between black colonial troops and German women. So this book really has a lot to it, but I think we've taken up a lot of your time, Lisa. So I'd like to, uh, as we begin to draw the interview to a close, uh, I thought maybe you could share with the audience the new project that you might be working on now. Certainly, I'd be pleased to. Um, so my new project, you'll see that there are lots of parallels uh, with the project we've been talking about. I'm still very interested in the history of sexuality. I'm interested in this concept of Germans having sex with so-called foreigners and all of the, you know, ramifications of this according to the onlookers. And so the new project looks at the longer history of so-called uh, miscegenation discourses in German history. So miscegenation being this quite distasteful term, meaning people who have people of different so-called races who have sex with each other. So interracial sexual relationships, I guess, would be another way to say it. Um, the title of my new project is a bit long at this point, uh, but it's called Racial Citizenship, Miscegenation, Scientific Authority, and the Creation of Intimate Others in Modern Germany, 1880 to 1950. So in a nutshell, um, I begin by looking at uh, German colonialism, specifically in Southern Africa at the end of the 19th century. Um, and I go all the way through to the end of the Third Reich and the end of the Second World War. And I trace the many ways that uh, so-called interracial sexuality has been uh, governed or controlled by state authorities, how it's been discussed by sexologists and more specifically by anthropologists, how it was experienced um, by everyday people, how their lives were controlled etc. Um, so I'm hoping that by taking this kind of longer look at this uh, issue to uncover some new ways of thinking about the creation of racial categories in this long time period um, and to get a better sense, as I did with this first book, of how racist rhetoric affected everyday people's lives. Um, so in three weeks, I'm actually very fortunate to be able to go to Namibia, which used to be German Southwest Africa, to study on the ground how this rhetoric and how these policies affected people in the German colonial period. Um, I've just finished an article on the racial anthropologist Eugen Fischer, who traveled to Southwest Africa in 1908 to study the so-called not the so-called, I'm sorry, to study the Rehoboth people. The Rehoboth are a so-called mixed people living in Southern Africa. Fisher, as an anthropologist, went there, uh, measured their heads, studied their skin color and their eye color, looked at their family trees, all in very distasteful ways, um, and then wrote a whole book on uh, the so-called problem of bastardization, as, as mixed race encounters were called at this time. Um, 
So Fisher is one of the anthropologists and one of the officials that I'm kind of following throughout this project. And so I'm very excited to go to Namibia uh, to, as I said, get a better sense of, of, of how these policies actually played out on the ground. And of course, Namibia was the site of the horrific Herero genocide um, in the, of the early 20th century. And I'm very interested to see how genocidal policies, how war and conflict influenced rhetoric around so-called miscegenation in, in all of the different time periods that I'm studying. And, and I think it's quite clear to see how that comes out of the project that we've been discussing today, but I'm certainly trying to expand it greatly in different directions. Well, that sounds like another very ambitious and compelling project. So I, w- I, I will eagerly await the appearance of that book. And in the meantime, uh, I'll look out for the article that you mentioned. Uh, that sounds like Great. a great project. Thank you. Well, Lisa, I'd uh, really like to thank you for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. All right. I'd like to uh, thank all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode. This was an episode on uh, New Books in German Studies, which is part of the New Books Network. We've been talking today to Lisa Todd, uh, and we've been talking about her recent book, Sexual Treason in Germany During the First World War, which appeared in 2017 with Palgrave Macmillan. I hope that you'll continue to tune in and listen to future episodes of new books in German studies. Thank you very much. 